You know, I was reflecting this week that we live in a time when we love to have standards, be able to certify things. Your car has to meet a certain standard before you can get your inspection sticker and put it out on the road. Your toothpaste tube can only be of a certain size before you can take it on an airplane with you. The steps can only be so high to meet standards. We have academic tests, standardized tests to make sure that people are measuring up. We, we want to somehow to be able to quantify, to be able to define what sufficiency or success is. You know, and I, I wonder how you take that same thought pattern and apply it to the body, to the church. You know, Nate just said to us, you know, there's going to be graduating, moving on to other endeavors. At some point, as you move somewhere else, you're going to be looking for another church. What do you look for? What should be the standards? Our elders and staff are going to be going on a retreat later this week, Friday afternoon and Saturday, coming together with someone that we've invited to come in and kind of lead us through that journey. But we're essentially going to be asking the question, what, what does it really mean for us to be a good church, a great church as Hope Chapel before God? You, you wonder what you really should look for. It's curious, you know, that I think many of the things that attract people to a church are really, in some ways, not things that God's all that, doesn't really care all that much about. One of the questions I often guess is, where is your church? Meaning, is it close by? Is it easy to find? Kind of idea. And that's appropriate to a certain extent. I mean, it's tough to go to a church that's an hour and a half away. It's kind of hard to be deeply involved if, if just every 20 minute meeting takes three hours round trip to go to. I mean, I understand that. But there's other kinds of questions. Well, well, what kind of a children's ministry do you have? Or what kind of a youth ministry do you have? Or do you have a singles ministry? Or what's your choir like? And what's the music like? And how long does your pastor preach? <laughs> you know, those kinds of important questions that get asked. And, and we start looking at these kinds of requirements. And, and you really wonder, because I don't think I'm the only one wondering. You really wonder, what does it really mean to be a, a good church, a, a great church? You know, and the text that we're going to be in today, to me, lends itself very heavily in that area. What, what should you and I be looking for if we're seeking a church home? What in you, should you and I be longing for to be the, the heartbeat of the church that we're already in? We're going to be in Acts chapter 13 today, and, and, and I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles with me. And if you're using one of the, the Bibles that's there in the seat underneath you, um, you'll find our text today on page uh, 938. I want to tell you that you know, there's sometimes when you prepare a sermon and, and you, 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 just, you, you just sense this, this great sense of freedom to kind of preach it. You just know it's going to flow and you know how to make it engaging and, and it's going to, a sense of how it's going to speak to people and people are going to walk out of here edified and kind of lift it up and more full of joy. And there's other times when you just, you just really are fighting it the whole way and, and, and you're not exactly sure how it's going to come out. I, I gotta tell you, I think this message is gonna be somewhat disjointed. I, I don't, I don't have that sense of freedom in, in this message today, and that's symptomatic of the fact that your title is not even grammatically correct. I mean, if you look at it, it says, the makings, the markings of a greatness. Now, I'm, I'm a little thick and educationally challenged, but I even know that that's not an adequate phrase, and that's because it was originally the markings of a great church. I deleted church and added nest, but I took out, forgot to take out the A, and so, because we're really, really looking at the question of, of the markings of greatness. Now, let me, just a couple of comments before I start reading here. One, one, first of all, God doesn't have any problems with us desiring to be great. If anybody you wants to be great, you know, anyone you wants to be first, God doesn't have any problem with us wanting to be great. God does have a problem with the way we want to be great and what we want to be great in kind of idea. And so, and, and in order for a church, 
to be great. Those who God has called together to be that local fellowship have to embody those same things in their own heart. I mean, if, if I or I and the staff and the elders are the only ones who really say this is what it means to be a great church and, and the rest of you are still looking for, you know, all kinds of other things, it's never going to be. This is something all of us got to own. So th- these are the markings, if you will, of greatness. And now, first of all, this text we're going to read is about the first missionary journey. This is, this is Mission Trek 101, you know, like Star Trek, Mission Trek, right? You know, boldly going where no man has gone before. This is the gospel going where it's never been before. The church in Antioch is going to send out Paul and Barnabas and with them John Mark. And they're going to, it's going to be the, the beginnings of the first missionary journey, which is going to finish in chapter 14. What I want to do is read the text and make some comments as we go along. Then I want to backtrack and, and just try to draw out some things for us as we go through. Now, this is a lengthy passage of Scripture, so it really will be helpful if you follow along in your own Bibles. And I'll try to make some comments as we go. Things that are, are, are relevant for study, things that we need to notice, good messages for us. But then we'll back up and take a look at what do we see in this church and in this ministry that really speaks to us about what should be the heartbeat of the local church. And so it says, in the local church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Some wonder if those were two separate roles or was it a combined role? I think the answer is in some cases it was both. There were the prophets who came down and from Jerusalem in chapter 11 and spoke. There are other times when we know that Paul and Barnabas were, were teachers, but I think there's times when they're together. And so here we have these, these prophets and teachers and their names are Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius, the Cyrenian, and Menaean, a close friend, or somebody who was raised together with Herod the Tetrarch. And then there was Saul, who we better know as Paul. Now these, these five were ministering to the Lord and fasting. And the Holy Spirit said to them, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have called them to. Then after they had fasted, and they prayed, and they laid hands on them, they, they sent them off. And being sent out by the Holy Spirit, and let me let me make a comment here, and this is not going to make it into my characteristics, but when, but when the church is used as an instrument of the Holy Spirit, then it's really in a place where it can do great things for God. The Spirit is spoken. The church is the one that lays hands on them and sends them out, but they are simply being the instruments of the Holy Spirit who has truly sent them out. It says they came down to Seleucia, which was the port uh, area that was connected with Antioch, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, large island about 60 miles off the coast in the Mediterranean. And they arrived in Salamis, and they proclaimed God's message in the Jewish synagogues. They're going to go do that every place that they go where there's a synagogue. They're going to start in the synagogue with their ministry. And they also had John. We know him as John Mark or as Mark as their assistant. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. So his name means son of the Savior, right? He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. And this man summoned Barnabas and Saul and desired to hear God's message. But Elimas, the sorcerer, because that's how his name is translated, opposed them. They tried to keep, turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, he stared straight at the sorcerer. And he said, you son of the devil. It's interesting. Sometimes we, we bear the name of Christ but we're really doing the things of the devil. Here this guy's name is Son of the Savior, but Paul can look into him and know that he's truly the Son of the Devil. He says, full of all deceit and all fraud, enemies of righteousness, won't you ever stop perverting or making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the Lord hand is against you. It's a scary thing. And you're going to be blind and will not see the sun for a time. 
It's interesting, Paul was made blind because he saw the Lord on the Damascus Road. Here, because this guy couldn't see God, God used Paul as an instrument to make him blind. And suddenly a mist and a darkness fell on him. And he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul, seeing what had happened, believed and was astonished at the teaching about the Lord. It, shouldn't, the, shouldn't the world be able to see what's happening in the church and as a result of that, believe and be astonished about the teaching of the Lord? So Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia. So they leave the island of Cyprus, they sail north to the coast of what is now modern-day Turkey. John, however, left them and went back to Jerusalem. Scholars love to, to try to figure out why he left. It becomes a big deal later in the book of Acts, and Paul and Barnabas split up and all those kinds of good things and because of this. But, but it's interesting to ask that question. We really don't know the answer. So they continued their journey from Perga and reached Antioch and Pisidia. Now, I just got to stop here for a minute. This, this is one of those times when, when we don't know geography, especially we don't know ancient world geography, we, we just miss so much. You know, there, there were a number of cities that were named Antioch. That's because one of the sons or grandsons of um, Alexander the Great was named Antiochus. And when his son came to power after him, he started 16 cities and named them all after his father, and he called them Antioch. So they're all over the place. It's kind of like we have Washington, D.C. and Washington State. Well, they just had any, you know, they just had it everywhere, you know. And But what we lose in this thing is that they're down on the coast, in the valley, leading out to the coast of the Mediterranean, and moving from Perga up to Antioch. It's a, it's a trip of 100 miles. It's over a mountain range, one of the most treacherous treks that you could take in the ancient world. And it was just filled with bandits. It was dangerous. And not only that, you went from the plains, basically at sea level, to a city that was 3,600 feet above sea level. This was a tough journey. And and sometimes we read this, and it's like, well, they just walked from Miolas to the Sterling Ice Cream Bar. You know, it's just, just an easy trip, right? You know, this is a major haul for them. That may be one of the reasons why John Mark left. He said, I, I ain't going on that trip. Forget that. Where's the taxi? I'm going home, you know? But we don't know. So I got that out of my system. I feel better now. All right. So on the Sabbath day, when they went to the synagogue and they sat down, and after the reading of the law and the prophets, which was the normal flow of a regular Sabbath service in the synagogue, the leaders of the synagogue sent word to them and said, Brothers, if you have any message of encouragement for the people, you can speak. Then standing up, Paul motioned with his hands and he spoke. And it's very interesting. We're going to read this. It's a lengthy message, and, and then it kind of brings to conclusion at the end of chapter 13. But it's very interesting how Paul uses the Old Testament differently than Stephen. But they're both basing their messages on the Word of God. Stephen, a few chapters back in Acts, he goes into the Word of God, and his message is, if you will read through the Word of God, you will see that the people of God have always been resistant to the messengers of God. And therefore, that's why you're rejecting Jesus today. Paul here goes back and he looks through the word of God and he says, you know what? God has made promises in the scriptures and now he's keeping those promises. And if you reject them, you do so at your own peril. If you embrace them, you do so to your great blessing. So he begins to speak in verse 16. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our forefathers, exalted the people during their stay in the land of Egypt. In other words, they became numerous. And he led them out with a mighty arm, the, the plagues and the deliverance through the Red Sea. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the desert, his mercy. Then after destroying seven nations in the land of Cana, his promise, 
He gave them the land to them as an inheritance, the fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. This all took about 450 years. And after this, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And after removing him, he raised up David as their king, of whom he testified, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will carry out my will, all my will. Now he says, from this man's descendants, according to the promise that God made, God brought the Savior Jesus to Israel. But it's because he, before he came to public attention, John had previously proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. In other words, before Jesus burst on the scene, John the Baptist was proclaiming repentance to the Israel. And even John, when he completed his life work, said, who do you think I am? I'm not the one. But look, someone's coming after me, and I'm not worthy to untie the sandals of his feet. Brothers, sons of Abraham's race, and those among you who fear God, the message of this salvation has been sent to us. For the residents of Jerusalem and their rulers, since they didn't recognize him or the voices of the prophets that they read every Sabbath, having fulfilled the words by condemning them. They found no grounds for the death penalty, but they still asked Pilate to have him killed. And when they had fulfilled all that he had written about them, about him, they took him down from the tree and put him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and he appeared for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we ourselves proclaim to you the good news of the promise that was made to our forefathers. God has fulfilled this to us, their children, by raising up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. And since he raised him from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will grant you the faithful covenant blessings made to David. Therefore, he also says in another passage, you will not allow your servant, your holy one, to see decay. For David, after serving in his own generation in God's plan, he fell asleep, meaning he died, and was buried with his fathers, and guess what? He decayed. But the one whom God raised up did not decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you. And everyone who believes in him, believes in Jesus, is justified from everything which you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. So beware that what is said in the prophets doesn't happen to you. Where it says, look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away, because I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you'll never believe, even if some were to explain it to you. So he's challenging them there to believe. And, and as they were leaving, they begged that these matters be presented to them the following Sabbath. You know, I've never had anybody chase me down the driveway and say, ooh, 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 would you just stay and keep teaching? I've never had that happen. I think Paul was probably better at this than, than me. And after the synagogue had been dismissed, many of the Jews and the devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who were speaking with them and persuading them to continue in the grace of God. So the following Sabbath, almost the whole town assembled to hear the message of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. And they began to oppose what Paul was, being, was saying by insulting him. You're short. You're ugly. Whatever. I don't, know. I don't know what they were saying. Though there are those thoughts that Paul was short. Then Paul and Barnabas boldly said, it was necessary that God's message be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have appointed you as a light for the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and glorified the message of the Lord. And all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. So the message of the Lord spread through the whole region. What a great statement. 
But the Jews incited the religious women of high standing and the leading men of the city. You know, the way this works, if you, if you want to get rid of somebody, what you do is you date, you go down the red, you go down through the phone book, you find all the leaders of the city and you talk to their wives and you get them mad. They go home and they pick on their, on their husbands and they go back to the office and they stir up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their district. But shaking the dust off their feet against them, they proceeded to Iconium and the disciples were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. And believe it or not, the story gets better in chapter 14. We'll get a chance to look at that next week. Mission trek. The gospel going to places it's never been before. It's in the interior of Asia Minor. Uh, some marvelous things that are happening here. Some great, great things that we can pursue. But I want to tell you, I, I just want to kind of come back to the text and, and, and present to all of us, present to myself. Say, if we want to set a standard for us to be the kind of church where verse 49 can happen, where the whole message of the Lord spread to the whole region, the things that we have to embrace that are important to us are these. And I'm going to cheat a little bit here on the first one. Because I'm going to make my first point not out of things that come out of chapter 13, but come out of chapter 11 and then flow to the end of chapter 12. I mean, the end of chapter 11, Church of Antioch is, 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 is taking root, it's growing, and it says that some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And, and there was a prediction of a famine that was going to be across the whole world. But in the midst of that, I think as well, they understood that the church in Jerusalem, the members of it were having a first t- hard time. And so in verse 29 of chapter 11, it says this, So each of the disciples, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brothers who lived in Judea. And this they did, sending it to the elders by means of Barnabas and Saul. We read at the end of chapter 25, literally on the heels of the beginning of chapter 13, where it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem after they had completed their relief mission, on which they took John Mark. They they had gone to Jerusalem to deliver this. And i got to tell you, one of the things that we have to embrace... we, we often look for a church, and the thing we're looking for is to say, it, can this church meet my need? Now, that's not an awful question, because it is a problem. Does this church have ability to teach my, help me teach my children the things of God? Does it have a youth ministry, mission? There's certainly elements of that. But the primary thing that makes a church great is not ability to have their needs met, but the ability to meet the needs of other people. Here was this church in Antioch. They had all kinds of need around them. They had a whole region that needed to know Christ. There was all kinds of things they could have invested in directly. They could have built more buildings and et cetera, but they found a way to give themselves away. And they had the capacity to meet needs. These are people they were never going to look in the eye. They're probably going to never know how God used these resources to make a difference in their life. They weren't going to receive any real thank you letter. There wasn't going to be new pen. They just, they heard a need and they responded to it and God used it. You know, and when I use the word capacity here, I'm not just talking about the resources to do it. I'm talking about the readiness to do it. You know, it struck me this week as I was processing some of this stuff. I mean, you think about all the opportunities to make a difference. They kind of run, you know, right now they got the, the first fund, right? Is that what they're calling it? The first fund for the Boston Marathon? You know, I'm thinking, you know, should we, have, should we have said anything about that and collected money as a church to send to that? We know that our sister association in Boston, they're trying to collect the fund that the churches can use directly to minister to people who are impacted by that. Is that something we should be promoting? I, I don't know. Probably the answer is yes, but, but there's literally a dozens of those things that happen every single year. You just have to read the newspaper to know there's a natural disaster going on somewhere in the world almost all the time. And part of the mark of a church, a great church, is a church that's not known as, as so much as a place where you can go and have your needs met, but a church that's ready to give themselves away to meet needs somewhere else. 
Today we have, I don't know, 12 to 15 of our adults who are serving the church in Worcester called Pleasant Street Baptist Church. They're not here. They're there. They're serving. That's a good thing. Being able to meet the needs in other communities, other churches, extending out. It's a challenge to me. You know, right now as, as a church, we, we give a little over 13%. I think it's like 13.5% of our budget to missions. So if you put $100 in the plate today as an act of worship and giving it back to God, $13.50, probably just a little bit more, is going to go to missions. It's going to go out the door and get to an agency in, in, in Virginia that's going to send it to 5,000 missionaries around the world. Or it's going to get to an agency in Atlanta that's going to go out to support work across our nation and in Canada. You know, some of it's going to go to our local area where it's being used to impact, you know, um, church plants and try to support and encourage local churches. Some of that stuff goes directly out to individuals who are serving in ministry. Some of them right here in our own back door, Young Life with Eric Stolfus. Some of it goes halfway around the world to Burkina Faso or to Rwanda. The money just goes everywhere. And it's a wonderful thing. I celebrate. It was one of the things that we should give us our greatest pride. It's not how big our budget is or how fancy our stuff is, but you know what? We can, we give like $85,000 a year to missions just directly through our budget. But there's a part of me that thinks it ought to be a whole lot higher. Some of that is the challenge of having a million-dollar mortgage and all that kind of stuff. But but i got to tell you, though, I, I, I don't know if I've, I can recall, and I, and I worked it. I don't know if I can recall. I, I don't think I've ever had anybody call the office or – or ask about the church and say, you know, and they're trying to figure out, is Hope Chapel the place for me? I've never had anybody ask me this question. It's like, you know, they'll say, well, like, how is your children's program? This, they never call them and say, hey, is Hope Chapel the kind of place that's going to challenge me to sacrifice my time, sacrifice my money, and give me a way to make a difference in the world? I, I don't know if I've ever gotten that kind of a call. And I don't know if that's their fault or if that's our fault. But the churches that God really just changes regions through, what God's real standard for success is, is not the capacity for people to have their needs met, but for a church that can meet needs. And the second is kind of related to it. You know, we, we, I often get asked the question, well, what's your attendance? And again, there's a typo here in your, in your point. It should be this, this point should be the capacity to send people out rather than how many people we can seat. But I often get asked, well, what's your attendance? Because what they want to do is measure what kind of a church we are by how many people we have. That's not, I look at how many people are here every single Sunday. I do. I don't think that's a bad thing because God cares about people and every single one of those numbers represents a person. But I got to tell you, what makes us great isn't how many people sit in the chairs. It's how many people get out of the chairs and get sent out to do something in the name of Christ. That's what makes us great. Now, if you were ranking Paul and Barnabas as church leaders, where would you put them? You think they'd be A, B, or C level type leaders in your church? I mean, probably the A type, right? I mean, let me give you the example. And this happened in my first church, right? We didn't have air conditioning. Really, really hot summer. So we kind of said, you know what? We don't want to go out and buy a whole bunch of fans for the church. We don't need them all the time. We just need some people to donate fans. You know what fans we got? People went out and bought new fans, brought those home, took the noisy ones that rattled in their windows, and brought them down to the church building. Because they didn't mind losing those, you know? And we just had to turn the mic up a little bit so they could hear, you know, the sermon over the noise of the fans. You know, Paul and Barnabas weren't the kind of guys like, well, we don't mind losing them, right? But God speaks to the church. He says, you know what? I need to start a new team. You got to contribute a couple of people to the missions draft. And they said, well, I think we can spare so-and-so. Nobody knows them. They don't do much anyways. They said, no, 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 no. Let's take the best guys. It was interesting. This morning I had a conversation with somebody. who said, you know, boy, when, you know, we've been praying. You know, you guys know we've been praying for Steve Blummer, for God to place him in the right place, whatever. When he goes, we're going to be sad, you know? And we should be sad. 
But but are we going to be excited that we've sent somebody out to make a difference? And then anxious to see how God's going to raise somebody up to fill that place inside the body? Or are we going to grieve our loss? Or celebrate our ability to give somebody away. A few short weeks, we're going to start, the church plant's going to start down in Worcester, the church on Seven Hills. We've got, I don't know, eight or ten family units that are committed to being a part of the core. And there's, there's times we can look around and say, boy, we're going we're gonna to miss those folks. I hate to lose them. And they're great people. But it ought to be a moment for celebration to say, isn't it cool that we get the privilege of sending out eight to ten of our families or more to start a new work? And guess what? It leaves us more seats here so we can go out and reach some people to fill them kind of idea. We need to measure our our healthiness our by our ability to send people out, not to hold on to them. And that ought to be true for, for us. You shouldn't measure your faithfulness to the church by how often you attend. It should be measured by your attendance that pumps you to go out and serve in the name of Christ. I wonder sometimes, even with all of the wonderful mission opportunities we have with students going to South Africa like we have kids preparing to do this year, M-Fuge, we've, the Lens, we've, they've been invested, you know, at Pleasant Street Baptist, we've done, you know, BFC, even though that team seems to get a little smaller each year, and good rain is, there's just, there's just, there's just a way for us to be prepared and eager and looking for a way to send folks out to have an impact. It was interesting, after the first service, a young adult came to me and said, you know, I've been asking that very question, if it's time for me to go back to the mission field. What a cool thing that is. A couple more things, because I know our time is up. You, you can't read this passage without being struck at the centrality of the gospel message. Paul's in a brand new city, Antioch of Pisidia. Influential city for this region. Just just miles from anywhere. You know, there, there's no other, just, just Antioch of Pisidia. There's no other, you know, there's, it's not like he's going to turn the corner and be in Jerusalem in a week. He's out there. And, it's, and he, they give him an opportunity to speak. And he doesn't, his mind isn't working like, okay, let's, what's our marketing plan so that three months from now we can say the word Jesus. You know, these, the message just pops right out. It's Christ. It's Christ crucified. It's Christ buried. It's Christ resurrected. It's Christ ascended. It's the forgiveness of sin. It's the message that's there. And in all the things that we wrestle with as a church, one of the things we never need to lose is the centrality of the gospel message. Now, I will tell you, one of the things I wrestle with in my office, almost on a weekly basis, is, is you know, it seems now that, that the need to grow the church in other words, to reach the people who are literally inside of our mission field. We don't, we don't want to go plant the church somewhere else together, but the people who are literally within our orbit. Part of having to reach the challenge of reaching them is to, to engage in the things that they are, that they want in their lives. And what they want is to be happy. And so we, we can get really focused on talking about the things that, that, that are intriguing to them because they want to know how to be happy, how to have joy in life, how to have great marriages, raise great families. And those are all important things. But the central message of the scriptures, what God's agenda is, is not to make us happy. God's agenda is to make us holy. And how do we find that balance and live it out in a, in a powerful, productive way? And, you know, you can say, well, let's go the other route. You know, and I got to tell you, I, there, you know, I, I had dialogues with pastors and, and they're like, well, we're not interested in quantity. We're interested in quality. We want people to be holy. I'm thinking, you know, I think God cares about all those other people. Yet at the same time, God wants them to be holy. And I, I think you can have quality and quantity, but how do you bring that together? But in the midst of all of that, we still have to present the centrality of the gospel. Not just in the way we preach it from the pulpit, but in the way you guys live it in your neighborhoods and your cubicles at work. One last word. There's kingdom fruitfulness. 
The great churches as we see it in Acts chapter 13, these are ones who, who just have the eagerness and the capacity to meet the needs of others. They, they, they take delight in sending people out. They're, they're ready to focus in on the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they produce fruit. So the message of the Lord spread through the whole region. I don't know how you measure that. I, I, I don't know if you could say that that's true of Hope Chapel in the 11 years that we've been here. Certainly there are those across northern Worcester County who have been more exposed to the kingdom because we've been here. But you can't say that the, the message of the Lord spread through the whole region because of us. I, I, I don't even know how in some ways you measure kingdom fruitfulness. Maybe, maybe baptisms are a symbol of that. I, I don't know. You know, and I would say at that point, 12 to 15 or 18 baptisms a year is, is far from an indication that we're as fruitful as we should be. Maybe it's really designed. How many, how many times a week do our people give their faith away or a month or a year? How often do they share their faith? I, I, you know, I think there's just a lot of room for us to grow. But, but when you look at a church that's vitally connected to the vine, Nate, when you go looking for a church, it, it, you should be looking for the fruit that you see growing because it's, it's about kingdom fruits. I told you this sermon was going to be a little disjointed because I have no idea how to end it. You know, yeah, first of all, pray for the staff and the elders this week as we go on retreat because God's got some things to share with us. And like these guys at the beginning, as we're ministering to the Lord, we need to be able to hear what God's saying and be ready to take those steps. Secondly, remember, God has no issues in your desire to be great. He just wants you to be great the right way. God has no issues with Hope Chapel or any other local church being great. He just wants us to be great in the right way. Let's pray together. God, now that we're all overwhelmed, discouraged, depressed, wishing these thoughts would go, in some cases, just go away. Certainly, Father, where we're not ready to walk out the door feeling like like we've been filled with happy thoughts today. Father, we still come back to you. And in our desire to minister in your name, we ask you to speak to us that we might be truly great. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Just stand, please.